Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles, your devices. Let's go to Exodus chapter 13, continuing our series through the book of Exodus. Getting to Exodus 13, and we're getting to some familiar passages. And so the trick for us, if you've been in church for a while, is to try to read this like you've never read it before. Because we all come in with some preconceived ideas. We remember sermons we've heard and things that people have said, and somehow that begins to taint what's actually being said in Scripture. So let's just, um, those of us who have been in church for a while, let's just open our our minds and our hearts to what God actually says. Let's just do that this morning. If you've never heard this story, uh, you've never read it, you've only seen movies about it, then this might be even better for you this morning to read what scripture says about this historical account of the power and might of of God. Exodus chapter uh, 13. Up on the screen will be some scripture I'm gonna use this morning as we we dig in. I am gonna finish chapter 13. There's a section in 14 that I wanna touch today And then next week we'll cover more of it. So we get two weeks of the Israelites crossing through the sea. And so we'll do two weeks of that. Um, At this point now, they've made their journey. They've been set free from slavery in Egypt. They've been there for 430 years. They've been set free from slavery in Egypt. And God is leading them to the promised land, the land that he promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's leading them there. uh, But the way that he gets them there is not the way that they would have taken to get there. Have you ever experienced that with God? Like, You have an idea of where God's taking you, but then you also have an idea of how God should take you to where you need to be going. And sometimes we tell him uh, out loud, sometimes we don't, Uh, but that's what this journey is. And so what I'm learning throughout this study is uh, I'm way more like the Israelites than I want to believe I am. I'm I'm, I'm broken, I'm stubborn, um, I am grief-stricken, I play the victim, I'm way too much like them. But what I'm seeing also is just the, supernatural, steadfast love of God towards his people. That even when they are at their worst, he blesses and rescues them. So let's, I wanna just read these passages, um, then I wanna go back through and study it, and then try to get it to a place where we can hopefully understand the heart of God through this passage this morning. So let's go Exodus chapter 13. We're gonna start in verse 17, and then we're gonna jump to Exodus 4. So Exodus 13, 17, when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. You can underline that. Although that way would have been shorter, basically, is what we're learning here. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war, circle the word see, and return to Egypt. <clears throat> but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness. You ever felt that way? Toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord, Yahweh, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might, then underline this, travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. 
So chapter 14, one through nine, tells us the account of Pharaoh coming to his senses and realizing what he's just done. He just let his entire workforce just walk away. And he recognizes what happens, what is happening, and he goes after them. Like he pursues them. He, he employs his military, 600 of his best chariots, and they chase after these two million Israelites. Let's pick up in verse 10. <clears throat> and when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. You can underline that. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, to Yahweh. And they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this that we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see, circle that, the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see, there's that word again, today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they go, after, go in after them. And I will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I've gotten glory over the Lord, his, over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Uh, a couple of months ago, we did a men's event and we played laser tag. Uh, and it, it was freezing. It was so cold that night. Fifty uh, something men were there and acting like little kids. Uh, freezing. I mean, so cold and windy. The, uh, the obstacles they had put up wouldn't even stay up. And um, even the guys running laser tag were like, we, we probably shouldn't have done this tonight. This is probably not a good idea. Uh, I'm like, we paid you a lot of money. They're like, yeah, still, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's worth me getting paid to stand out here in 20 degree weather. Uh, but they did, half-heartedly, but they did. They were there and uh, handed out guns and stuff. And it got a little confusing because I think they're supposed to have different colors, like lights on the headband on the gun so you know who's on your team. But at this point, I'm not sure we knew who was on our team. We didn't know, it was dark. So I'm watching two teams play. And I've learned a lot from Daryl Sanders over the past few years of my life. Like I've learned a lot from him. Uh, He's one of the most kind, gentle, spirit-led men I've ever been around in my life. I've learned what it means to be a husband and a father from him. But one of the most important things I learned from him is how to play laser tag. Uh, Daryl, um, we don't know who's on whose team, right? And so we're all in the dark and everyone's bundled up and it's freezing. So it's supposed to be two sides and Daryl, <laughs> I love it. Daryl comes up around to where we're all watching and he just, he's playing in the game. And he comes and he just kind of stands by the fans and he just stands by us with his gun and he slowly makes his way down across enemy lines back to behind the other team, behind them. And he just starts picking dudes off one at a time. I mean, just pow, pow, taking, taking them out. And the whole team has no idea what's happening. 
because they don't know where it's coming from. They can't find anyone. Uh, at one point, Daryl is behind me with his gun on my, sho- on his, on my shoulder, taking, taking guys out, and they can't figure out what's happening, and he's just, he's just, he's just there. He's just there. Just quiet, unassuming Daryl, not making a big deal about it, no Braveheart paint on, nothing. Just, just killing dudes, like just taking them out. And they can't figure it out. They're looking all around and they see him, but they're like, oh, well, he's on, he's on our side, so he must be on our side. Only to realize, Daryl's not on your side. <laughs> just taking them out one by one. Uh, and so I'm watching and I'm, I'm learning and then studying through this this past week, that image came to my mind of the enemy uh, he likes to take the more subtle approach, right? Like he likes to get behind enemy lines to attack. And sometimes we don't know where he is. And while our eyes are forward, um, what we're learning this morning is there's a God who protects the blind side. There's a God who gets our six. And he comes behind us and defends. So let's study through this passage with some of that in mind this morning. And I wanna ask you to do this for me this morning. Let's not listen to the sermon for someone else today. You ever done that? We're like, man, this would be really good for my wife to hear. Does that ever happen for you? Or I wish my husband was here. This would be good for him. Well, he's not here. You are. So maybe it's for you today. Uh, let's, let's try to listen for what God has for us today and see what God has for us and ways he's leading us this morning. So Exodus chapter 13, uh, verse 17. Let's just study this together. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. There would have been a more direct route to the promised land, also called Canaan. But if they were going to go that way, they would face the Philistines. Um, Philistines are big, burly, warrior kind of men. And what God knows about his Israelites is, although they are people of his own choosing, people that he has chosen uh, to be his representatives in the world, he also knows they're not ready to fight. And certainly not Philistines. They just got out of slavery. They just witnessed 10 crazy things happen over the course of a month or so, and they're they're just not ready to fight. And so he says in verse 17, God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God knows that when his people see something, it affects their hearts. Whatever they take in with their eyes affects their hearts. And so God knows if, if they see the Philistines, if they see the potential of war, He knows what would happen to them. They would change their mind and go back to Egypt. Then verse 18. Instead, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Let me just say this to you this morning. If you are in the wilderness, it might actually be because God took you there. Look throughout the course of scripture and see how many times God leads people into the wilderness. Matthew chapter four, it is the spirit of God who leads Jesus into the wilderness. So why wouldn't God lead you there too? And might just be for your safety, for your protection, and for your development. It's a whole other sermon. But by the way, the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now, our Bibles say Red Sea. Um, we get into some confusion here because geographically speaking, it's really hard to find a historical Red Sea. In fact, in Hebrew, the phrase might have actually been the Reed Sea or the Sea of Reeds. Now, it could have been the color red, maybe. Um, but just for you, uh, when you start studying some of this, probably a better translation would be the Reed Sea or the Sea of Reeds. The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So two things are happening. God's grace towards his people. He's not gonna lead them by the land of the Philistines knowing they're not ready for that yet. So he will take them in the wilderness as an act of grace. 
but his people can't see this. They can't see what's happening and they think they're equipped for battle. They think they're ready for battle. Those of us who are parents and have kids, you understand what's happening here. Because your four-year-old thinks she's 14. And you have to remind her, no, 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 baby. Nope, you, you cannot, you should not. Your, your, your 16-year-old thinks they're 26. They're, they're equipped for battle. They're ready to face whatever the world has to throw at them. And then you understand, you, you, you still leave the toilet seat up. You're not ready for battle. But they've come equipped for battle and God knows his people and in his grace, he is not leading them that way. But I want you to, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites. They don't have this narration happening behind them, right? They don't have, they're not hearing, they're not hearing in their headphones. Well, God was leading them by the way of the wilderness because they weren't ready for battle. Right? They, they don't know what's happening. They just think they've got to get out of Egypt. The quickest way out of Egypt is up to the land of the Philistines. And they don't understand what's happening. We have to put ourselves in their shoes. Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, which that sounds odd to any of us. That's just, that's weird. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you. That word visit means to see and take care of you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So if you're not familiar with it, the question is who is Joseph and why are we carrying his bones? That's the question. Like why is Joseph so important that he said, hey, here's, I want you to take my skeleton with you wherever you go. I want you to carry it around. I want you to put it on a necklace. I want you, I, I want you to take me, take my bones with you. Why is Joseph important? You gotta remember Exodus is part two of a five part series and it began with Genesis. Not only that, this is the entire narrative of God's people, the Israelites, the Jews, or the Hebrews. Joseph is a key figure in this story. Father Abraham, he had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. Uh, this, this Abraham, us church kids, we got that joke. Um, Abraham is the father of the Hebrew nation. He's the father of the Israelites. God chose him uh, to be the family by which God would send the Messiah. So Abraham uh, has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. From Jacob's 12 sons, we get the 12 tribes of Israel, which is also kind of why we have 12 disciples in the New Testament. The 11th of the 12 children of Jacob, or sons of Jacob, is a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph is his father's favorite son and his brother's least favorite person on the planet. This is Joseph. Joseph's father loved him so much that he gave him a colorful technicolor dream coat to wear. He said, I love you so much, this is for you. His brothers hated him so much, they were out in the field one day and decided they've had enough of Joseph and his dream interpreting and his sucking up to their father and they're tired of it. And so they beat him and they're going to leave him for dead. And then one of the brothers says, hey, listen, let's, let's make some money off of him. Why don't we sell him to slave traders? And so they end up selling him to slave traders, take Joseph's coat back, smothered in lamb's blood, and tell their dad that Joseph died. Joseph gets taken, uh, bought, and taken into a land called Egypt. This was 400 years before what we're reading here in Exodus. While in Egypt, it's just a family, Joseph, there's a famine in the land, particularly in, in Israel, and so Joseph's brothers come to Egypt looking for food because Joseph had a vision that we need to store some food aside because a famine is coming. 
And so they come and they stand before Joseph and they say, hey, can we get some grain? Not fully recognizing who he is. They, he recognizes who, the, who they are. Through a series of events, ultimately, Joseph provides for his brothers what they were looking for. So long story short, the people of God, the Israelites, are in Egypt because of Joseph. That's why this matters right now. So you can turn there if you want to. It'll be on the screen. Genesis chapter 50. This is the end of Joseph's life. Um, he, has, he has risen to power with the Pharaoh in Egypt. The Pharaoh trusts him. He believes in him. He, um, he's given him power. He's given him stature. Joseph is dying. Look at Genesis 50, verse 26. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. That's the family. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mashir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So what we're getting here is Joseph was a big deal. And he saw a few generations of his family in Egypt. He saw the beginning of the growth of the Israelites in Egypt. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. God will see you. God will come to your aid. That's what that means. He will come to help you and bring you up out of this land, Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That would have been the promised land. Joseph has faith, we learn in Hebrews chapter 11. It's by the faith of Joseph that he tells his brothers, listen, I know a day is coming when God will come to your aid and will rescue you from this place. And he will take you to Canaan, the promised land. So I'm asking you to take my bones with you. Look at verse 25. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. He will come to your aid and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, scholars debate about whether or not he was actually buried in the coffin or they just kept the coffin above ground. We're not real sure. But we know he made his brothers make this promise. This was 400 years before what we're reading here in Exodus. They're slaves in Egypt. There's a land promised to them. It was just a family. And now in Exodus, we see this has become a nation of 2 million people. This, has, this thing has grown tremendously. And they still remember the promise that Joseph's brothers made to him. But here's what I want you to understand before we go any further. The promise made to Joseph has less to do with the bones of Joseph. It has more to do with the promise of God through the lineage of Joseph. And here's what I mean. Maybe you have a life verse. Like maybe that's something that you were taught and you have a life verse, something that just matters to you that you carry with you throughout your life. If you played football, it's probably I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's probably what yours is. Or iron sharpens iron. It was on all of your t-shirts growing up. But for this one, Joseph, there's a verse for him. There's, a, there's something that summarizes for me the entire scripture. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph stands before his brothers. They're begging for mercy. Joseph gives them the food and he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The life of Joseph was summed up in this verse. What the enemy meant for evil, God has intended for good. 
You meant to kill me and leave me for dead. You meant to sell me away and tell our father that I was dead. You meant for this to be the end of my life. You didn't know you were actually creating the beginning of my life. This is the story of Joseph. So when the people of Israel take the bones of Joseph, they're not just taking bones of Joseph. They're taking a lesson learned. They're taking a promise. They held on to the bones of Joseph for 400 years, but they did not hold on to his belief. They held on to the tradition, they held on to the artifact, but they did not hold on to the belief. And so for the Israelites, the bones came to represent tradition. It represented what used to be. It represented kind of the years gone by. It represented um, the days of yesteryear, represented uh, back in the good old days. It represented um, who they thought God was. It represents their genealogy and their ancestry. But the struggle for the Israelites is that's not true of God anymore. When Joseph said, God will surely visit you, no one thought he meant in 400 years. What they thought he meant was, I don't know, a week, 10 days. And so they've held on to the bones, but they have discarded the belief. And the truth is we have the same thing, don't we? We have bones that we carry with us. We have things that were good back then. We have things that we used to believe. We have things that our grandma taught us. We have things like that. For many of us, church has become that. It's a thing that we do. It's a tradition. It's, it reminds us of the days gone by. It's something that just good, wholesome Southern people do. But we've lost the belief that comes along with it. We hold on to the Bible as a good moral handbook, but we've lost the faith and the, and the power of God through it. So they're carrying the bones with him, but I think they've neglected the belief that came with them. So let's continue back in Exodus chapter uh, 13. Look at verse 20. They moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. I love that. I love the picture that we have of the edge of the wilderness. So essentially they've got their two feet, one in each land. They've got, they've got one leading towards the promised land and another foot going back towards Egypt. They're on the edge, they're teetering. This could go either way at this moment. They've been delivered, delivered. they've been set free, they're on their journey to the promised land, but they're not there yet, and so they're on the edge. This could go either way. And for many of us this morning, here's how we, this is how we feel, isn't it? We feel like we're just on the edge. Like we're not there in the promised land, we're not fully getting what God has promised to us, and yet we still feel kind of free from what we were enslaved to. This could go either way, depending on the day today. For some people in the room today, today, literally today, is a make it or break it day for you. You're on the edge. And this is where they are. This could go either way. So then verse 21. So the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So I want you to recognize what's happening. They're traveling both during the day and during the night. They're moving forward towards the promised land, both when they can see and when they can't. Both uh, when there is light in the land and when there is darkness. They've traveled in darkness too. But then look at verse 22. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before or in front of the people. As God has delivered them from Egypt, Passover lamb has happened. As he's leading them, not by the way of the Philistines, but through the wilderness, they're being led by a physical fire by night and a cloud by day. 
And many of us are like, I would love that right now because I've got some decisions to make and I need to know, should I marry this girl? And it would help if you would just put a flame on top of her. Then I would know. I would know it's her. Should I take this job? I mean, it would, just, it would be super helpful if I could just wake up tomorrow and just follow this Mario cloud all the way to the new job, right? We, I would, we would love that. Now, I wanna argue later that Yashi don't want that. I think we have something better. But this is what's happening. But notice, this cloud and fire stayed in front of them this entire journey up until this point. So then Pharaoh recognizes what he's done. He gets his military and they begin pursuing the Israelites. 600 chariots and some trained military uh, men are now after the 2 million men, women, and children traveling to the promised land. What are the chances you think the military is going to catch them? The military would catch me and my five-person family. I guarantee you, they would catch us. Because one of us has to go to the bathroom every 20 minutes. And one of us is hungry, and one of us wants to know if we're there yet, and one of us forgot the charger to our switch, and we have to turn around and go back because I'm not gonna make it three more hours without my switch. I gotta go back. So they're coming, and doom is impending upon the people of God. So let's go down to verse 10 of chapter 14. And when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And what did they see? They saw the Egyptians marching after them. And rightfully so, they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they cry out to the Lord through Moses. Because then the next phrase is, they said to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? I want you to remember what's just, what's just happened. They just left Egypt, and on their way out, they asked their Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver and jewels and livestock, and the Egyptians said, yes, take it all. You can have all of it. You came in as slaves, and now you're millionaires. This just happened. They just saw the 10 plagues. They saw the mighty act of God. They, they saw their firstborn life spared while God took the lives of the firstborn of the Egyptians. They, they were witnesses. And it's not like it was passed down through generations, witnesses. They just saw this, like days earlier saw it. And they faced the first hard thing they're gonna face. And they asked Moses, you stupid idiot. Why are we out here? Didn't we try to tell you? We tried to tell you we'd rather just be back in Egypt. We, did you bring us out here because there wasn't, enough, there wasn't enough graves for two million of us in Egypt? Is that why? Is that why? Yeah, yeah, that's why, Mo, yes. Yes, that's why Moses did all of those things so that he could bury you out here. No, what? what? But in a moment of lifting their eyes and seeing the Egyptians, they've lost sight of all of the goodness of God. And they begin to complain to Moses. Verse 13, Moses, and you see the growth in Moses, don't you? Because burning bush Moses doesn't say these things to angry people. Burning bush Moses says, oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, let's go back. But notice what Moses says. Fear not. Stand firm. And see, lift your eyes to this. Stop looking at them. Look at this. See the salvation of Yahweh, which he, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. That's quite the journey for Moses, isn't it? Moses who said, you can never use me. I don't speak super good. Now it's like, God's gonna do it. 
Stand firm and see what happens. So instead of lifting your eyes to the enemy, I want you to lift your eyes to the salvation of the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting. This word salvation, it's really kind of the first time it's used in this way. And so this is, this is where we get the Hebrew definition of salvation. But this Hebrew word for salvation is the Hebrew word Yeshua, which is transliterated into the Greek, the name Jesus. Salvation is Jesus. And so Moses tells his people, quit fixing your eyes on the enemy and I want you to fix your eyes on salvation. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So now they're standing there. He says, stand firm, fix your eyes on this. Get your eyes off the enemy and get your eyes on the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Then he goes a step further and says, oh, and by the way, the Egyptians won't be your problem ever again. Take your eyes off the enemy and onto salvation. And now he's gonna tell them how to do it in verse 14. The Lord Yahweh will fight for you and you only have to be silent. Some of your translations say you just have to be still. And I think that's unfortunate. Because in the next verse, God is gonna tell them not to be still. And it feels like a great contradiction. The phrase here is not to be still physically, it's to be still verbally. And the way Moses is saying this, he's not polite about it. He's not saying, hey, would you just please stop? Would you please keep your voice down? What he's saying to them is shut up. Just shut up, all of you. You just saw what happened. Just quit the griping and complaining. Shut up, stop. Stop running your mouth, stop. Stand here, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. He will fight for you. Quit running your mouth. Just shut up. Just stop. It's as emphatic. And he's connecting the eyes and the mouth now. He's saying, I know what you're seeing. Don't let it come out of your mouth. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus. And we'll learn later in another, in another chapter. And then start singing out of your mouth songs of salvation. And then I love this in verse 15. <laughs> The Lord says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. It's as if God is saying to Moses, I, my plans haven't changed. Tell them to keep going. I didn't tell them to stop. I've told you that I'm going to set you free. Tell them, just keep moving forward. Why, why are you asking me what to do when I've already told you? I've already told you. Follow the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. Just follow me. Why are you crying to me? You tell them to go forward. In fact, verse 16, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians then shall know that I am Yahweh when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then verse 19, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel. So here's, we gotta do some work here. The angel of God, the first time we met the angel of God in Exodus, you remember was back in Exodus chapter three, when the angel of God was speaking to Moses through a fire at a burning bush. So this angel of God is the pillar of fire. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. 
Now you remember Exodus 13, 22, it said the pillar of cloud and fire never left from being in front of the people of God. This is the first time they're gonna witness it. God has just told, told Moses, tell the people to move forward. And so I can picture Moses saying, all right, it's time to move. And there's no flame there anymore. There's no cloud because now it's moved back behind them. And so there's this moment of like, okay, you said to go forward, but it's like the thing that was moving us forward now is behind us. Do we go backwards? What do, what do we do? It, it's disconcerting to them. But here's why, verse 20. It came between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Because the enemy was not in front of them, the enemy was now behind them. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Now it gets more exciting throughout the night when a wind comes and the seas are parted. A lot of things are happening here. But I wanna land in this place here this morning. We read this passage, like I said earlier, and we think, man, I would, I would really love the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke because I got some decisions to make. Or I'm a little concerned. I feel like I'm following the Lord. I just, I just need to know for sure that I'm following him. And we would say, so what I would like, God, is some external sign to show me. And maybe you've said this before. You've said things like, it would just be easier to follow Jesus if I was on the earth with him. Like if he was here now, it'd be easier to follow Jesus. I know me, and that is not true. I look at the life of the disciples and people that follow Jesus who have way more faith than I do, and they couldn't do it. I don't stand a chance in that way. And in fact, the narrative of scripture would tell you oppositely or differently as well. So here... Here you have the Spirit of God before us. That's what's happening here in Exodus. The Spirit of God, the presence of God. The, the flame is the presence of God. You have the presence of God before them. Jesus comes and he is called Emmanuel, meaning God is with or beside us. Acts chapter two, Pentecost comes. And the Bible tells us there was fire above every head of, of, the per, of people in the upper room. The presence of God now is no longer before us or with us. Through the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is in us. We aren't waiting for an external before us or an external with us. We've got the Spirit of God within us. We have the Spirit of God in us. So while we might think it'd be great to follow a fire and a pillar of cloud, I think Scripture would argue, no, 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 no. What you've got is better. The issue is, I'm not sure we know how to follow the Spirit of God within us. Am I right? It sounds like a great idea, except for I've got all kinds of thoughts and things in my mind. How do I know which is which? Like, how do I know that's the Spirit of God and not the Spirit of my mama? How do I know? Like, how do I know? Well, how do we follow God with the Spirit in us? I think first of all is this. You know the Spirit of God by knowing the Word of God. That's how. And I know that we're a Baptist church and we talk about the Holy Spirit freaks a lot of us out. Um, but gosh, you're, we're missing out. To know the Spirit of God means that we have to know Scripture. In the New Testament, Paul is talking to a young preacher boy named Timothy and he's writing about how in the, time, in the days to come there will be people learning and studying all kinds of different things and chasing after false doctrines. But he tells Timothy this in verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3. As for you, 
You continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing whom, from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then look at this in verse 16. All scripture is breathed. The New Testament is written in Greek. The same word for breath is the same word for spirit. What's happening here is that Paul is telling Timothy, all scripture is spirited by God. This right here that we're reading today that you hold in your hands digitally or tangibly, whatever you hold in your hand is not just words on a page. It is the breath of God. It is the spirit of God in your hands. I don't know if you've had a loved member or loved family member pass away and you found maybe a box or a bin of letters they wrote or things they had written down. And when you hold that, you, you can almost feel that person there. Like you, you read the words and you hear their voice in your head. Like that's what this is. This is the breathed, spirited word of God. And Paul tells Timothy, it is profitable. It's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So then here's the argument. Well, I've done all that, right? Like I did a wanna. I memorize verses. I've got a scripture memory. I do my quiet time every morning. And I check that box and I still, I still don't, I still don't hear God. I still don't feel the presence of God. I still don't know how to um, tune my ear to the spirit of God. Well, let me just say this to you first. This is not a rule book. This is not a moral code. This is the story of God. How do you get to know the spirit, the essence of God? Then you read a story about God. Let me say it to you this way. Meredith and I have been married for almost 15 years. And there are things about her now that I know that I didn't know back then 15 years ago. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like there are things that I know about her. And I love those things more than I used to love them before. But there are also ways in which I'm learning her spirit like I'm learning the things that make her happy and the things that disappoint her, the things that hurt her. And I'm learning that because I have relationship with her. I'm, I'm with her daily. I'm spending intentional time with her. I'm listening to both verbal and nonverbal cues. Men, I just think it's a great thing for us to do. Women speak a lot more nonverbally than they do verbally. And so I'm, I'm learning. And so sometimes it's, it's a look in her eyes where I'm like, I, I shouldn't say that. I will not say that again. Sometimes it's me coming home from work and she greets me at the door with that look on her face like, if you don't come in here, I'm gonna go to jail for killing all three of your children. <laughs> Doesn't have to say a thing, but I know her spirit and I know I just, I walk right in and I'm like, mama's mad. Get better. <laughs> let's pray. That's right. I'm like, let's pray, all of us, let's pray. Uh, but be... If someone were to have handed me uh, like bullet points about Meredith, about facts about her. Uh, hey, Meredith is uh, this tall. She has this color eyes, this color hair. Um, these things make Meredith happy. These things make Meredith sad. I might know some things about her, but I don't know her spirit. And I've tried marriage that way. It doesn't work. Relationship is not built on facts, it's built on story. I learn the most about Meredith when I see her in life. 
I learn the most about her when she tells me stories about work or about interactions, even growing up with her family. That's, that's when I learn the spirit of Meredith and God is in the very same, works in the very same way. You wanna know why we don't hear the spirit of God? Because we've read this as a manual and not as a story about the character of God. And that's why when you come to decisions, you go to the appendix. You're like, oh, what does it say about job changes? Well, it's nothing there. Well, what does it say? And so then we start looking for things and we start pulling verses out of context to say what we think it needs to say. Then we start making decisions, not based on the spirit of God, but on some handbook we've been handed. To know the heart of God, to know the spirit of God, you have to know his spirited word. And the truth is we've just gotten lazy. We just don't care. And we'd rather make decisions based on what politicians tell us than on what the Spirit of God tells us. We'd rather make decisions based on what certain news channels tell us instead of what the Spirit of God tells us through his word. But if you're just gonna pick this thing up to check a box, you're never going to know the heart of God. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter three to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it get in your bones, let it get in there teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We gotta let this dwell in us, which is why personally I'm so passionate about it. I wanna teach the word of God. I wanna teach this. I don't, I don't wanna give you five, a series of five weeks to a successful marriage. I don't wanna do that. I wanna teach you the Bible. I wanna teach me the Bible so I know the heart of God. So I'm not relying on some, uh, something I read in Cosmopolitan to tell me how to live my marriage. I wanna know the heart of God because how God loves his church, how I should love my wife. So that's what we need. We need, we need an ongoing, deepening relationship with the Lord. You're gonna love this next one. I think also we know the spirit of God through pastors. That's how we know the spirit of God. And I'm gonna tread lightly here so you don't think I'm saying things about myself that I don't mean to be saying. I think every person needs a pastor. I think they need someone who's going to lead their hearts spiritually and carefully. If that's an amen, yes. <laughs> um, I, I don't think we need a speaker and I don't think we need a CEO. I don't think we need a politician. I think we all like sheep need a shepherd. I think that's what we need. The problem is sometimes the shepherds say things that the sheep don't like to hear. And so the sheep look for a new shepherd or they start to make up their own mind about what that shepherd actually means by what he just said. Ephesians chapter four, Paul says this to the church at Ephesus, that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd and teachers, probably just one word meaning pastor, for this reason, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children 
tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You want to know why the Israelites were so quick to abandon the goodness of God and run back into slavery in Egypt? Because they were immature and they were tossed to and fro by the changing winds of their circumstances. And what they needed was Moses to say, stand firm and shut up. Not, not out of pride and arrogance, but out of a deep heart for those people. Like, I know you're hurting, but here's what you need. Dig your heels in right here. We're not going back. We're going forward. God will save. God will deliver. Let's just watch how he does it. Pastors are not presenters and speakers or CEOs or thought leaders. We are shepherds, which means this. If you have a godly pastor, if you have a biblical pastor, he loves you and he is concerned for your heart and for your family and for your marriage and for your kids. And he doesn't stand on a stage to tell you what you should do because he's arrogant he stands on the stage to tell you what to do because that's how God's called him to pastor you. That's how God's called you to care for your heart. I think every person needs someone like that. Our souls need it. I need it. That's why I love having Daryl in my life. And Daryl doesn't tell me what I want to hear all the time. But Daryl tells me the heart of God. We need pastors. We need a, a person to tell us what to do. And I just completely honest with you. What's frustrating sometimes is to stand up here and to study intently the word of God and to have you on my heart and my mind and to communicate things to you and say, I believe this for you. I believe this to be true for your marriage. I believe this is what God has for you in your life. And you got to repent and make these decisions only to get a phone call from you in three weeks. Say, hey, can we meet again? For then you to tell me that you haven't done anything that I thought that God had told you to do. I love you, Daryl loves you, Cody loves you, Michael loves you, Joel loves you, Jeff loves you. And sometimes what we need to hear the Spirit of God is a person to speak the Spirit of God. And it is my humble prayer that God uses me to do that. If I ever stand up here and start telling you how to live your life and never do it out of this book, you fire me on the spot. Tar and feather me. I don't deserve to be doing that. We need the word of God. We need the people of God. I think finally we need the past to hear the spirit of God. You wanna know how Moses knew that God was going to deliver them? Because 400 years earlier, Joseph said, God will deliver you. And I want you to take my bones with me. So you wanna know why you come to church? It's to be reminded of the promises of God that he will deliver you. He will Yeshua you, he will. It might be in 400 years, but he will. And he's coming and he hears. You need to be reminded of the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You need to be reminded of the stories of Paul and Timothy and Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. You gotta be reminded of it. I don't want us just to carry tradition forward. I want us to carry the belief of the bones forward that God will deliver. So maybe today you find yourself on the edge of the wilderness. Before you is an obstacle and behind you is the enemy. And you're asking, well, what do I do? Well, I don't think God changes. 
So here's what I think we do. I think we stand firm and I think we keep moving forward. That's what we do. I think we stand firm in the truth of God's word. I think we stand firm in the character of God and we keep moving forward. Your marriage falling apart? Stand firm on the word of God and keep moving forward. You failing classes? Stand firm on the word of God and keep moving forward. Your college plans haven't worked out? Stand firm on the word of God and keep moving forward. Your kids going crazy? Stand firm on the word of God and keep moving forward. Why are you crying out to me? I've already told you what to do. If you bow your heads and close your eyes. And I don't know what God has for you today. I don't know where you find yourself. But what I'm learning to love about scripture is that God is annoyingly consistent with who he is. And when we say there's no shadow of turning with him, I, we actually do mean that. So it's why I can stand up here with confidence and I can tell you that you know what God does? He delivers. You know what God does? He saves. You know what God does? He rescues. And the how, I don't know. But I know the what. Because I know the who. So maybe today what you need to do is you need to tune your heart to the spirit of God. And scripture for you has become less about the heart of God and more about uh, an owner's manual to life. And I would just encourage you to start seeing it differently. We offer classes on Wednesday nights to come and learn about how to see the Bible the way I think God intended for it to be seen. We have small groups with men and women who are wrestling the same things you are, struggling with the same things you are, and some who are a few years ahead of you who have wrestled that thing and said, here's how God brought me forward. Carry these bones with you. Maybe you just need to hear from the Lord today. You might quiet your heart. He's unchanging. Who he was in Exodus is who he is today. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the way that you love us and pursue us and change us and challenge us. I thank you that the songs you've given us to sing carry forward. I thank you that uh, the truth you presented in your word from thousands of years ago has gone unchanging, that you are who you say you are. Yahweh, I am that I am. And we can bank on it. We can trust it. So for those of us who have carried the bones of dead faith and dead orthodoxy and dead uh, tradition and ritual, God, help us to get under it to find the belief that's underneath the bones. For those of us today who feel like we're on the edge of the wilderness and we don't know what to do, would the words of Moses come clear to us today? Stand firm and move forward. May we do it today. Give us eyes to see Yeshua, the salvation of the Lord ahead of us. May we believe it and trust it and run after it. In Jesus' name, amen.